Reverse Interview Podcast, Episode 12. Now is the perfect time to find your dream job, but it requires a fresh look and a unique twist. That's why Charles Woolsey is here to extract proven solutions from today's experts and make your dream job a reality. Welcome to the Reverse Interview Podcast. Get in, get hired, get promoted. Here's your host, who scored 99 plus percentile on the math section of the SAT, Charles Woolsey. Yeah, it's that math score that told me I should be an engineer. Welcome to the reverse interview. I am really excited to share this one with you today. My guest is Dale Callahan. He's an electrical engineer and faculty member at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and a fellow podcaster. Plus, he's just a great guy, and he has a lot to share that I know will impact your career. Listen to how he created a job out of thin air and how that impacted the job he already had. There are a lot of great lessons here. One note, though, I had some issues with my side of the recording. It's not perfect, but just bear with me. Fortunately, Dale does most of the talking, and his recording is great. So let's get started. Dale, what was your very first job? Well, my first job was probably as an entrepreneur as a kid in high school, you know, mowing grass and things like that. Um, but the uh, and several entrepreneurial little ventures. But the first real job straight out of college, straight out of engineering school was at Bell South or what's now AT&T. And what did you do there? You know, I, I walked out of um, – as I tell people, I walked out of one of the top engineering schools and walked into a you know a corporate lobotomy. Uh, the uh, I uh, I mean it was great company, but the I, I basically was a, an associate or assistant manager over a group of people that all of them were old enough to be my mother or my father or grandfather. Um, and um, but I, I was involved in what was called switching. You know, we were the network. Mon- we did monitoring of the the network for a region of the company. So all the phone calls that went through, we were making sure they went through. Okay, that's interesting to get right out of out of college and you're in a uh, managerial position. Uh, uh, yeah, I was. I was in a man- there a long time. I, I was in a managerial position from day one, uh, which was not. Was not ideal. I will, you know, from every aspect, and uh, and uh, basically, I had um, there's a few guys, but there was about 22 women that either worked directly or indirectly for me. Uh, it was a, it was a it was a learning experience. <laughs> okay. Well, it sounds like you've come a long way from that to where you are now. Any other stops along the way that you want to talk about before we get to what you're doing now? Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've done a couple of entrepreneurs. Once I got out of Bell South and even during Bell South, you know, did some entrepreneurial stints and get through companies and, and accidentally have and ended up in academia at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and in the School of Engineering. Uh, and, uh, you know, and we're still doing a bunch of entrepreneurial activity, but that's that's where – you know, at least a decent amount of my time is spent now is at the university. And that's how you got in with them because of the entrepreneurship? I, I'm not real. We we had sold the company and, and I was sitting there looking for – and I'd gotten a PhD sitting there looking for the – I mean, this is great for talking for people looking for jobs, right? Right. I was – we'd sold the company. Uh, my wife was said, you're not staying home. <laughs> you, you better go find something to do. And, uh, and, and so – 
I had just gotten a PhD and I was interviewing. I was kind of going back interviewing with people doing software development, what I'd gotten into. And I was getting the overqualified. They would look at the PhD and, uh, it was, you know, I was told, man, you don't, you don't belong here. And, um, and I went to my friends at some friends at the university and was asking them, Hey, you know, what, what's going on here? And they told me, uh, so I, I was really asking them for advice and they said, Hey, do you want a job? We got this position we created and we need somebody who's an entrepreneur, a PhD with industry experience. And that's you, you know, and I said, no, you know, I think I said no seven times before I took it, but it was one, you know, it was one of those odd, I was really asking for advice and there was a job sitting right there that I didn't even know about. You know, that's a tip in itself that it, they always say it's it's easier to get a job if you already have a job. Yeah. Because when you don't have a job, you tend to look desperate and you'll say yes to anything. But that guy who says no seven times, man, you want him bad. <laughs> <laughs> it was weird. Yeah, it, it was the weirdest the weirdest job interview I've ever had. And I remember in, in the world of academia, the interviewing tends to be a, a very intense process. It's not. I mean, some companies it is too, but I remember going to sitting down and meeting with the dean who created the position and he, and I'm thinking I'm there for an interview and he starts talking to me about strategy and I'm, and I, and I finally asked him, I said, well, Hey Steve, you know what? Do you want to see my resume? And he said, why? You're sitting right here in front of me. Fair enough. You know, and uh, you know, and I'm like, don't you want to interview me? He says, no, I want to get busy. Are you ready? You know, <laughs> ready to what? To start. To working? start. Yeah, he was. I mean, this was after a couple of times me saying no, and I, I, I tried to weasel my way out, and he basically wouldn't take no for an answer. Uh, he was a very creative fellow, so uh, it, it was it was the weirdest hiring experience I've ever hired, had in my life. Not that I've had a million of them, but it was weird. So he obviously knew you, knew your capabilities, knew your personality. There's some reason why he wanted you, other than. Your resume that he didn't I, look at. I got no idea. Uh, really? I did not know him that well. I knew some of the other guys pretty well, but I did, I did not know him that well. So you knew he knew of you through your reputation with the other guys. P- probably, yeah. Okay. It, it was one of my first experiences of uh, people don't read resumes. Um, you know, which is which has been pounded into my head. Uh, and there's there's two things people never read: is a resume or um, or a business plan. I mean, or very rarely. I mean, there's there's not a lot of reading of those things that's very serious. It's just a required document. It seems to be just, yeah. <laughs> Get it over the fence and then move on. Yeah. Right. Well, that's, that's good. I mean, one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is I like to hear people's stories about interviewing and how they got jobs because for the most part, you know your journey. And you may hear a story here and there, but you don't really know what other people are going through, how they got to where they are, uh, the, the, the trials and you know, the successes and the failures. So I, I like just hearing those kinds of things because, you know, strange things happen. You can't always expect things to go what people seem to think is the normal path of submitting a resume, getting called in, doing an interview, and you're hired or not hired. Yeah. Well, you, you know, and I find the path of work – the path works, that path works so poorly. Uh, and I've had several experiences, even when I was in Bell South, 
when I was experimenting, you know, trying, I was, I was literally experimenting with getting other jobs for a while, uh, based upon reading the book, what colors your parachute, I believe is the name and, um, very popular book. And, uh, and I went I interviewed out the author's son a couple of weeks ago. Awesome. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. he, that guy has a story in his own. I mean, yeah, obviously, um, but, um, it, you know, it, it forced me to think, I mean, one of the things that forced me to do, and I was sitting there at Bell South having a Prozac moment every single day. Cause I, I literally hated my job. I mean, I, it was, a it was that Monday morning you wake up and you think, I, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and, uh, and I remember reading the book and him talking about, you know, going out and making connections with people. And he made, he said something about it in the book. And now there was nothing about jobs, job ads or anything, but, you know, it was kind of find out what you want to do, go do it. So I remember I, I was interested in the world of finance. So I thought, well, I'm just going to, and, and now I'm, I'm the world's biggest introvert at this moment. I'm, I'm, I mean, I, I break out in a sweat with two people around, you know, nervous. Because and I was I mean I'm an engineer that was built into the DNA, um, but I picked up the phone. I found this company. It was a local company that was the largest finance company I could find. It wasn't nationally, you know, so I could get to the owner. And I picked up the phone and I said, "Hey, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get to the owner of the company," which I I, I thought now there was making this phone call was I was sweating. It was it was a nervous thing for me because I was an introvert. But when I made the call, I really expected to get the runaround. You know, you can't talk to this person. But she says, well, okay, let let me put Tom on the phone. So next thing I know, Tom's on the phone, and he's the owner of this company. They have, you know, 30 employees or something. And I I didn't know what to say because I didn't expect the guy to get on the phone. So I said, look, you don't know me. My name is Del Callahan. I'm a local telecom engineer, and I'm interested in the world of finance, but I don't have any experience. Can I come talk to you? And I was so nervous. I said it that fast. I just rattled it out. And he was quiet and he said, sure, come over here Tuesday. How about nine o'clock? And I remember hanging up the phone thinking, what just happened? I have now pierced the corporate veil. I'm at, you know, this is not, I'm not at a huge company, but I'm at the owner. And I went and sat down to talk to him and I followed Richard Ball's book, you know, what to say. I asked him for 20 minutes. I spent 20 minutes. I asked him, hey, what do you love about what you work? How'd you get here? What do you hate about your job? And, I, and I, I'm looking at my watch. I'm th- Thank you so much for your time. You've, uh, you've taken a few of your time, you know, um, and, and he wanted to talk more. And he walks me to the door, hands me his card, gives me, he says, please call me if you have any more questions. And all I was doing was asking for advice, by the way. Right. That's yeah. all I was doing. And uh, he had no job opportunities, nothing. And, and he even tells me that. He puts his hand on my shoulder. He says, Dale, he says, I'm not looking to hire anybody. I don't have any needs, but I'm really, I like your passion. Uh, I'd like you to come to work for us. Wow. And I was just dumbfounded. And I, and I remember Richard Bowles in his book saying that, but I didn't read it because I thought, who in the world would ever hire somebody without the resume and all the formality junk? And I walked out to the car and I, I was, I was dumbfounded. I was thinking, wow, what? I just got offered a job and I got in the car and I remember so clearly a February day looking over the hood of my car and the cold, you know, rising up from the ground. And I thought, I just created a job out of thin air just by me being interested and being passionate about a field, even though I had no knowledge. 
and asking this guy for advice and asking the so right did, person. Did you take the job? I did not. I did not take the It was such an eye-opening experience, and I was in this mode of, uh, I would say, even almost depression with my corporate work. It uh, it it shocked the whole experience. Shocked me to the point of thinking, "Wow, maybe this is easy." And I and I kind of flipped back into some of my entrepreneurial days when I realized uh, when I was back in college and we had some companies. I realized how easy it was to make money flow. And it and I I had I had been working in this corporation, so I had this corporate lobotomy going on where if you want to kill all initiative and all entrepreneurial spirit, go to work for a large corporation. I, I'm not down on large, but that was just where I was. And um and uh so yeah, it was a it was that experience that that made me step back and say, Wow, this is cool. So after you learned that, you created this position out of nowhere, where did where did you take that? What did you do next? I started experimenting with other stuff, uh, and, and I actually ended up taking another position inside the same company at a research organization in Bell South, or with what was called Science and Technology, through pretty much the same process. Um, the thing that kind of emboldened me was I realized how easy it was to get a job, and so I quit playing the corporate game, if you will. I quit being scared of talking. You know, I started calling vice presidents of Bell South and going to their office and meeting with them and asking them for advice. You know, and before I would not have done that because of the political, you know, stuff about it. You know, but I just got to the point I'm thinking, you know, they could fire me. They can't kill me. You know, prob- and probably. And at that point, you're feeling you're feeling bulletproof. You got nothing to lose if they do fire you. Right. And, find something else. And, and oddly enough, I found that when I started doing that, everybody was thrilled. They were, you know, my boss came to me and says, it was about time you got out of your shell and started doing something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was thinking, I, I, you know, and, and but I think so many when I, I, I work with so many people in the corporate world and we have these blinders on. We think we're doing what the rules are. And we were never told what the rules were. It was a rumor mill of what the rules were and expectations that we think they are, but we've never asked. And and that was happening to me. I was beginning to see there are the the rules are this company in general wants people to make things happen, makes things happen. And you think there's this little wall around your little world that you're not supposed to venture out of. And you've ventured way outside of what most people would think their boundaries are. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like a lot of people, I mean, and when I'm, I mean, you know, you run into the very smart, very smart people think that. And after you kind of realize it, you're like, really? Um, I mean, th- this is a fairly almost daily conversation with me where I'm working with some corporate and I, I'm talking about people sometimes I work with that are executives of fairly large companies and they have all these boundaries that are not real. And I'm thinking you flying around in a Lear jet all day, you know, you're the king and you think you have boundaries and it's, it's a mindset. Now that's, that goes against everything I would have guessed. I thought it was just the lowly people at the bottom rungs that were putting these self-imposed walls around themselves. But even the top guys do the same thing. Yeah, I mean they're the, they're the same lowly guys who now just have a different title. 
I mean, I, I remember one executive, uh, this was a fairly large bank guy telling me, and he was, he was telling me he just hated his job, which is another shocking thing when you find out so many people with, with big titles really don't like what they're doing. And he said to me, um, he said, Dale, I just, I, I hate it. He says, yeah, I got a cool deal, but he says, I sit in meetings all day. He says, in five minutes in, I'm checking my iPhone or whatever device it was. The I think it was the uh, BlackBerry at the time. And I'm and I and I just looked at him. I said, Well, John, you're in charge. Who's calling the stupid meetings? He said. He said, You don't understand that organization this big. He says, Nobody's in charge. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know if that's you know I don't know if that's a cop out on his point. I mean, I, I, you kind of get it. You know, his he said it's kind of like the tight the ship. You know, it's it's really hard to steer it. It's got so much momentum, and nobody wants to jump in front and try to he, move. Yeah, he says it takes too much effort to change the system. He says I'm just trying to 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 make us more profit. You know, and I I, I kind of understand that. So, and hence a lot of the corporate burnout when you feel you have no control. Yeah, <laughs> I I remember so much, Charles. I I'm sitting there. I pick up. I was a young guy in Bell South, and I picked up one of our executives. We had him come into a meeting, and he was like the second guy in charge, reported to the CEO. And I was thrilled. I was picking him up at the airport. So he gets off his little Learjet, and I and he gets in my car, which I thought was weird. Why they got me picking this guy up? And I thought, so I told him, I said, man, it's just great to to, to finally meet you. you know. And I was thrilled. I was just awesome to meet this guy because he was like world-renowned for what he did. And I said, how does it – and he had been with the company for 30 years. He started at the bottom and worked his way up. And I said to him, how does it feel to finally be in a place where you can make things happen? And he just looked dead at me and he said, well, I'll let you know if I ever get there. <laughs> you know, and that's life. You know, that was one of the triggers. I'm thinking, I don't belong in a big company. <laughs> this is not, you know, some people thrive in that and some of us don't. Well, let me ask you this. You, you said you I don't know what year it was that you went out and, and created your own job out of thin air. I mean, obviously, there's there's times that unemployment is high and unemployment is lower. And, you know, at least the perceive, the perception is it's harder to get a job at some times versus others. Do you think you could do that, what you did at, in any climate, or was it a special time that it worked for you then? Yeah, I think you could do it in any climate. Uh, this is this is what I've come to realize is now, now. Granted, Charles, you know, me and you might put out job ads and and want ads looking for people sometimes, and other people were not. Other times we're not. Right, we're cutting back. <clears throat> but the one thing I have, you know, I have learned is every company is always hiring. It, it, and it's the case is if you are solving a pain for them, they're hiring. And, and the, uh, the simple example is if you come not, you know, if I have a fresh and both of us live in the South, so, you know, we have to cut grass and all. I'm, I'm assuming you have to deal with that, right? Charles? Oh, yes, I do. I still do. So, you know, if I, I've got a nicely manicured lawn and everything looks good and you're knocking on my door saying we want to, you know, we want to do your yard service. I don't care. There's no pain. Now, when my grass has grown up so high that the kids are getting lost and my neighbors are complaining, you know, you knock on my door and we we've we've got pain. I don't care what's going on financially. It, there's pressure. 
So when you look inside every single company, the question that we always we always ask three key questions is, you know, uh, I try to get to the right people and ask three key questions is is two of them coming from Richard Bowles. Tell me, how did you get to where you are? Because I'm assuming I'm talking to a person who's doing something I might want to do one day. Tell me how you got there. What do you love and what do you hate about what your work is, which uh, is revealing on all kinds of levels. And the question I've kind of discovered on accidentally is what keeps you awake at night? And that question has, I have opened more doors with that question because it, and it's, it's amazing when you ask that question of the right person. And you know it's the right person by this. Uh, I, I had this experience, and Charles, I'm running off on you, so if you could cut me up. I had this experience, um, and, and I took a team of sales engineers, uh, and we were looking at a contract. Uh, and, and so with this company, they did manufacturing. They put wood pellets on a on a barge, and you know all that doesn't really matter. But we, I took my team of engineers in, and we were talking. And of course, this CEO brought his engineers, so it was like the consultants have come in to talk to you. And it was a very uncomfortable meeting. You could tell they were like, would you shut up and get out of here? Every question we asked, they had done something 400 times better than we ever could imagine. You know, and I got it. You know, they were like, please get out of our space. So at the end of the meeting, you know, and we're getting up and I looked over at their CEO, whose name was Charles. And uh, I said, Charles, what keeps you awake at night? And he was getting up from his chair and he sits back down. And within 15 seconds, he says this. He says, we put wood pellets, which are biodegradable material, on a barge. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when that's going to combust. And when it combusts, it burns that barge into the $750,000, puts it on the bottom of the Alabama River. Then the Army Corps of Engineers comes, knocks on my door and says, hey, Charles, why did you put a barge on the bottom of the Alabama River? And by the way, here's your bill for cleaning it up. It took him about 15 seconds to say this. I looked back at his engineering team and I said, what are you guys going to do about this? And they, they just looked at me like, we don't have a clue. And I was thinking to myself, a few seconds ago, you guys were the smartest team of engineers I had ever met. And now you don't have a clue how to solve your boss's, boss's number one issue. And they probably didn't have a clue what his number one issue was. They didn't. That was what, you know, that came out in just a few seconds later. But, but what he had identified to me is here was my pain point. And here is the value. He said both things in the same 15 seconds. Here's what's the problem. And, you know, he, he I think we calculated about a $2.5 million risk as to what he rattled off. You know, and so it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. That right. And comes. it's just a probability kind of thing. And so we, we, I mean, if we would have come back and knocked on his door and said, look, we have a hundred thousand dollar solution to this problem, you know, two and a half million dollar risk versus a hundred thousand. Yeah, it's a pretty good deal for him. And, um, but I, that question, when you ask it to the wrong person, and oftentimes that's middle management. When you say, hey, what keeps you awake at night or what's holding your company back or what's holding your department back? Sometimes they'll say, well, they don't know. You're talking to the wrong person. That That's always the key. You know, I've learned from you know the sales and marketing people we used to have. Um, if they can't answer the pain question and if they can't put a value on it, 
you're talking to the wrong person. You are not talking to the authority. I can imagine in his head when you ask him that question, what keeps him awake at night is how he's going to keep his job or do I have to go to work the next day? It's not a corporate solution that he's looking for. Yeah, yeah. And he doesn't. You know, one of the things we try to get our people to do that come through our graduate program is we try to get them to talk to their internal customer, their boss, their boss's boss, and find out this. They're asking these same questions. And so often they come back to me and say, well, Dale, my boss, you know, I work for a big giant power company, which, Charles, you know, a few of them. uh, and, And my boss doesn't know what our strategic plans are for the company or what we should be doing in our division different or what, what our big problems are, or what his bosses, you know, my answer to them is always, you mean, so you don't, your boss that you work for that whose your job depends on doesn't know what's important. So if we take this back, if you're looking for a, a new job or a, a better position within the company, you are, how do you use that in the career space? If you're looking for a job inside your same company or either way, I mean, if, if you're doing your first tactic where you go and you're, and you're talking to someone at a company that you you know pulled up for whatever reason, is that a question that you would ask them in that situation? Absolutely. I mean, um, one of the things, Charles, you and I, we were talking before we have the we have an introverted mentality. <laughs> uh, and a lot of the people I work with are engineering technical people and they're introverts. And, and of course we both know also because your expertise, you know, that networking is the number one thing to, to get, to get new opportunity. All opportunities in life come through other people and that's about your network. Um, so uh, we do this thing where we do, we call it networking for introverts. And so we always start out with, it's a three-step process, is what do you want to do, really? Are you wanting to move up to a vice president of the power company? Are you wanting to be in the world of finance, like I went and asked? You know, where is your heart leading you? Forgetting all your background stuff, because that catches up with you later. But where are you trying to go? So many people go out there and they interview for jobs and they're not passionate about what they do. And one of the key things that a lot of these executives tell me, especially in the mid-sized companies, they say they're looking for passion. You know, because if if a, if there's a person who's passionate and competent, well, if, if they're passionate and not great competent, they'll get competent. But you can't replace the passion. And that passion is very difficult to put on a piece of paper in a resume form. Oh, yeah. It's very difficult. And, and a lot of times what me and you put on our resume is not what we really care about. That's right. You know, my, uh, I tell people all the time, I, I have SS7 networking in my resume, which there's only a handful of people in the nation who knows what that means. And I'm not one of them. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, so I'm, it's – but I don't care. I don't – and that's one, one of the things that happened to me in, in telecom world is I woke up one day and I thought, I, I'm, I'm thrilled to death I have an internet, but I'm not, I don't care about doing it. I'm not passionate about it. I'm, so I'm glad somebody else is. So you, so the number one thing is finding your passion and, and figuring out what it is you would be cool to do. And then the number two thing is who is doing it already. 
Yeah, uh, you know, and and I don't mean who's and, and this is where the mistake is often. I don't mean somebody who's doing it halfway. I mean somebody who's succeeding wildly. I would look for the rock stars in that industry. Yeah, or that position. I, I mean, if I'm you know going for a power company, I would much rather talk to the guys at the vice president or presidential level. And quite honestly, they're easier to talk to because one of the things they typically are better, they're better people, people. I'd rather talk to them than a middle manager who doesn't have the power to hire me anyway. And if they're not people, people, that's probably not where you want to be working anyway. Yeah, yeah there, there's a good clue. Yeah. That's you, one you, jerk I'm going to check off, off on my list. list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is so true. Yeah, that is so true. And, uh, but but that's what I like about that process too is when you come in as a quote unquote candidate, everybody play, starts playing the part. They start playing a role, and neither party is themselves. And you you don't have a true honest conversation that that moves things forward. You just kind of do the dance. Yeah, it it is a dance. Yeah, and and I, I don't know. I I hear things, and you probably hang out in this world, but. The people who do a lot of interviewing, uh, the stats show that the people who are doing the interviewing is more are more nervous about it than the people being interviewed because they're not expert interviewers. They think they're doing something wrong. They think they're violating some rule. You know, they think it, because when I, you know, when you're interviewing me, Charles, you're thinking, you know, it's all on your shoulders now to ask me the right questions. And 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 you're going to look like an idiot if you hire me and I'm an idiot. You know, it's you know, and that's it's, why, they're nervous. And that's why it's so much easier to, to look for reasons to say no than it is to look for reasons to say yes. Because if I say no, you're gone and I'm off the hook. But if I say yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Then I'm really on the hook. Yeah. Your risk of looking like a fool or a lot lower with a no. <laughs> Exactly. I found the same thing, oddly enough, in the venture capital world, you know, just say no and then say no a lot. Yeah. I mean, by the way, it's the same stuff. But when we when we go through this process, though, of finding your passion, who's doing it now, one of the things we try to get people to do, and this is kind of the networking for introverts formula that I was telling you about, is we try to get people to go ask for advice. Don't go looking for a job. Don't even care about whether there's a job, because if I want to, if I realize I'm passionate about power and the power industry and power delivery and all those kind of things that and I and I find this guy who's, uh, you know, the, the, and, you know, in our case, they may go to my church um, I don't, and I want to go sit down and talk to this person. I, what I'm looking for there is not that conversation you talked about that everybody starts to dance. Because it's because of me calling you and saying, hey, I'm I'm really interested in something. I think I don't know that much about it or I think this is the head. Can I can you give me some advice? That's a much different conversation than can we can we do this little interview dance? But most people don't know that world exists. They don't know that there's anything other than the dance process. No, they don't. Yeah. And. I taught an, uh, for a while, Charles, I taught an undergraduate engineering course. They were all seniors. So they would come through my course. There'd be about 40 kids in my course, kids, adults, whatever they were. 
I would tell them exactly how to go get work. I would walk them through this process. I mean, we, I gave them details. One out of 40 would do it. Really? Why is that? Because it's, it's, it's not the typical. It's not the, you know, it, and what I find people want to do today is they want to fill out a resume. They want to go to somebody's website. They want to upload it and sit back and wait. It, so it's, it's safe. It's safe. Yeah. And I, I'm, I would love that. <laughs> if it works. Sure. Yeah. I'm, to me, I'm all about that, you know, and, and I'm going to, I'm going to put the, I'm sending resumes to you, Charles. I'm putting all responsibility on you to recognize I'm a genius and call me. And, and it, it doesn't work out. I, sometimes I compare it to dating and just think about putting your best qualities on a piece of paper and throwing it all out there and then hoping some girl comes along and says, yeah, I pick you. It's like, now, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm not sure you're the one I want to be with. You know, am I going to, am I just going to throw things out there in the wind and just accept whatever picks me up? Boy, you just said it. That's the, yeah, that's exactly it. Because when you do that process, that's exactly what it doesn't mean. It's the job you want. no, yeah. yeah, odds are it, it's not the job you want. There's there's some reason. Well, whatever. If you throw, if you put your life into the chance mode and you take whatever comes at you instead of being a a, a part of the process, and I, and I think with employers too, you know, like doing the dance, they know you're trying to put on your best airs, but when you come at it and show your passion, and and it has to be real. Obviously, you wouldn't go there and talk to somebody if you didn't single them out get all nervous, you know, go through that whole process. If there wasn't a greater reward than the pain that you're going through by, by going out there and putting yourself forward. And they know that. Yeah. They know you're making that effort. They know it matters to you. Yeah. And it, it, you can't fake passion. Uh, you know, it's, um, I know I, I talk to people all the time and many of them are very successful at what they're doing and 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 it just I mean this is a great experiment for anybody to do. Just talk to somebody who's you know maybe they're a church member, a friend, and and start asking them about what they do. And hey, can I sit down and talk to you about what you do for a living? And you can see you know sometimes those people's eyes light up. They want to talk about what they do for a living. They're pumped about it. They will talk your ears off, and you'll have to shut them up to walk away. And then there's other times that there's you can see the deadness in their eyes. And then you'll change the conversation and, you know, and, and so what I, what I try to do is, is when I spot that, lead it to where their eyes light up and there's something for everyone. And it's so weird that the, I mean, a lot of very professional, very successful people, I know medical doctors that this happens, they're bored with the medicine, which by the way, I don't want to go see them if I'm sick. Yeah, I mean, there's a clue, you know, because we don't when we want to go to a doctor who do we, we I want somebody who stays up all night reading medical journals because we love it. You know, I want that doctor. Um, and, and when I hire somebody on my team, I want the people that are so passionate. I'm having to throw a rope around them and hold them back rather than push them. And, um, you know, that's. In general, that's what people are looking for. They're looking for passion. And you can, but it's a, it's just an interesting experiment that we're all really good at spotting it in others, but we try to fool ourselves that we're passionate about something we're not. Now, I know I did for years. I thought I was passionate about telecommunications. 
and I was I would I would feel guilty because the guys in the other cube in the other office they were just all into it. And I would be man, I need to I need to read up like they are. And I'd go buy the books or sign up for the courses, but I just I couldn't fake it. It just wasn't there. <laughs> yeah, there's I, I have been in positions like that before where you there's something that you really need to do or you feel you need to do and you've got to convince somebody else to give you a chance and that that's a tough road. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, good. I, I have loved this direction that you're going in, and and I just when you're talking about the things you're doing, I'm thinking that is brilliant. Who else in the world is doing this? There's got to be other people doing it, but I haven't really found anybody that's been so on target and succinct and done the things that you're talking about. Are there other people out there doing this stuff? Yeah. The uh, uh, I mean, you're probably familiar with Dan Miller. Uh, 48 days to the work you love. Um, and uh, Dan, Dan's, whether he's, he's not necessarily a career guy, but he kind of is. Um, uh, and by the way, he was one of the people I read Dan's book, 48 days the way you, and, and he lives in Nashville. So he's kind of a neighbor of our, ours. And, um, I read his book. And I, I had been doing this to the university, all the stuff that we're describing, I had been doing. And I, I was asking the very same question you just asked, Charles, is who the heck else is doing this kind of stuff? Because most people in the job world, they're just talking about resumes and interviews. Bores me to tears. I don't want to be any part of that. I hate that. I don't, I, I don't want, want to even be doing the interview. And so I read Dan's book. So I called him up. And, and try to get an interview with him, which was another process kind of like what I described. And I said, I'm gonna, I want to come up there to Nashville and buy you lunch. And I kind of got the corporate runaround with him a little bit. I really did. And then I got up there and realized it's just him and his daughter. <laughs> you know, there was this persona of this huge, large company. And he has a lot of people working for him, but they're contractors. But, uh, I mean, for 20 years, he's he's been kind of messing in this space of, you know, a common sense approach for helping people uh, find their passion and then helping people, uh, you know, find ways to do it either from an entrepreneurial point of view or, or finding a job that they're passionate about. Uh, so so he's one guy and he's to, to, to me, when I look at the space, he's probably the king. There's obviously some other ones. Good. That's great. I'm going to wind up. This is run a little longer than I intended, but I tell you what, I loved every minute of it. I love the things you're doing. I'm just going to ask you one final question, and, and maybe it's the book you just mentioned, but are, are there any personal development books that you would recommend to me? Yeah, I am always reading. I mean, I think we're all guilty of that. As my wife says, I'm always buying books. She's not real sure I'm reading them. Uh, but the, uh, the, the one that just kind of stands out, at the moment is the magic of thinking big. It's not a, it's not a new book. It's I think it's a 1950s book, isn't it? It's been around for a while. Yeah. It's on my shelf. Yeah. And it's a, uh, it's one of these things that I remember, I think it was him that said, um, for the, his, just as an example, he says that, you know, for, for a low level job, there's a whole bunch of applicants for a high level job. There's very few applicants. And his point was that, People all think of themselves in a small way, and that's why. And, and by the way, I, 
I would say that's the true statement. You have to hunt down high-level people. I can put a job out for McDonald's tomorrow and get a hundred applicants. I can put out a job for an executive vice president and, and I'll have to, I will have to literally hunt them down to find them. Um, and, and I think, I don't, I don't remember what the book says. It's been a while since I read it, but I think it boils down to, it comes back to passion again, that it's hard to be passionate about a little idea. It really it's is. To, yeah. It's easy to get passionate about a big idea. It sure is. It's is that part of the magic of thinking big? Yeah, it's yeah. Big and that passion and the, that's the magic. Yeah, and, and yeah, it is. I think that's a part of it. And that's that's a book. I, I mean, there's a couple of books I'm always sucking off the shelf looking at. You know, the Four Hour Work Week is another one I I, I tend to kind of look back at because he's kind of crazy, uh, but uh, but but also makes a lot. Of, I mean, I I like you. You know, I live with a lot of people stuck in the corporate world. Um, that feel like they've lost control of their time and their life, you know, and, and he addresses that in, in the four hour work week. But to me, to me, most, the biggest problem in, in the United States anyway, and I think most industrialized countries are that people, most people, I mean, over 50% statistically hate their job, which is really scary. You know, you want to talk about what's going on in government, but when you got a workforce that's that disengaged, there's something else going on. And, and we, most of the reason we hate our job is because we haven't stepped back and thought, what do we want to do? Because we went through school. You know, I, I don't know about you, Charles. When I went through school, I was led like a cow from one grade to the next. You know, you did the very minimum, heard you to the next grade. And then, and then you, hey, you're good in math and science. Go to engineering school. Okay. You, you get herded through that, and you're not really asked to think about what the heck you want to do. You know, and I get a job, basically the job that was available. And, you know, suddenly, you know, five, six years later, I'm stamped. I'm an expert telecommunications engineer involved in SS7 networking. I don't, and I'm looking around thinking, how did this happen? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's what happens, like we were talking about before, just throwing your resumes out there and somebody picks it up, you know. You weren't in control. Yeah, We're, we we do we do a much better job planning a vacation and planning a trip to Walmart than we do planning a career. <laughs> right, and that's why your strategy that you're talking about when you created the the job out of thin air is so powerful because you decided what it was you wanted to look into and made it happen. Yeah, it's Instead awesome. Of waiting for somebody else to make that first step. And I, I will tell you this one other thing, Charles. My daughter. And she goes to me. She helps me when I do speaking engagements, and she'll do stuff. And she, and she she can rattle this stuff off much better. She's an extrovert, so she's a much better job rattling this off. But she called me one day, and she said, you know, I've been involved in helping you for all this time, and I, but I never really believed it was true. So I had to test it. So I, I went and called somebody doing something, and they offered me a job on the spot. Wow. And she was like, I just didn't believe you. <laughs> Well, your dad, you know, there's well, a suspect right. to begin yeah. with. Yeah. And, you know, it doesn't, you know, and I, I don't want to give false expertise. It doesn't always <laughs> open the door that instantly. But, you know, I think if you did it 10 times, you're going to find opportunities. This, it, it just has to happen. Yeah. Either with them or somebody they know, because one of those persons is going, going to strike up you know, a real kinship with you and want to help you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the way me and you met was through a third person. Right. So... Awesome. This has been fantastic. I really enjoy talking to you. I think what you're doing there and the way you're helping people is is nothing short of miraculous. 
Well, well, thanks. I wouldn't. I don't know if I'll go that far, but I'll take it. So. Well, if you look at what most people are doing and how they're and how they're trying to to move forward and things they're asking them to do versus your strategies, it's it's just it's awesome. Well, how about that? I'll I'll take it. Okay. I'll repeat it to my wife and get. I'm going to have my kids, my, both my kids are in college. I'm going to have them listen to this interview. Maybe they'll accept what you're saying. <laughs> they'll accept it from me better than they will you. Exactly. <laughs> very good, Dale. I appreciate your time. All right. Dale, this, has been, this has been wonderful. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Thank you, Charles. This episode of Reverse Interview is over. Please visit reverseinterview.com right now for more information about this episode and to get all of the insider scoop to land your dream job. That's reverseinterview.com. We'll see you next time on the Reverse Interview Podcast.